started. Good morning, Impact Church family. Glad to be with you here today. Mary and I always love being here because this really is like a family reunion every Sunday. A functional family. I've been to the dysfunctional ones, so glad you're here this morning. I don't know about you guys, but we're ready for winter to end. We're ready for spring. And it's not about all the snow we have to plow. Mary's ready for me to get a haircut. She said, I was looking pretty woolly, and I said, this stuff's pretty handy when you're working outside. You put all this under a hat, and you stay pretty warm. But then also, I reminded her in the book of Revelations, it says when Jesus comes back, he's coming back with white, woolly hair. Just saying. I already got mine. This is what you guys have to look forward to. So anyway. Uh, I, I really love history, and uh, recently Mary and I went to a, a movie, uh, a war movie, 1917, and it was really a historical movie about two British soldiers who seemingly were given an impossible task or impossible orders. And it, in a race against time, they had to cross over enemy territory to deliver a message that could potentially save 1,600 of their fellow comrades, including one of the brothers of the soldiers who was going to go take the message. So one of the soldiers really wants to go because it's about saving his brother. The, only, the other one only goes because his friend is going, and he talks him into going. And, and I'm not going to, this is not a spoiler alert, I'm not going to say anything more about the ending of the movie, but it's very neat that two very low-ranking soldiers are given a message that could potentially change the outcome of the war. So a after seeing this movie, I was reminded, and I'm continually surprised that the people that God uses to advance His kingdom... You know, when we first started this series, Scott started off in Hebrews chapter 11, which I was a little, I wasn't bitter, but I mean, that was my favorite chapter, and you had to start with that. But anyway, I got over it, and, and, and he started off with Hebrews chapter 11, and it's one of my favorites because we all know it as God's Hall of Fame. And the more I go over the names in that chapter, the more security I have in my relationship with God and that I'm going to make it. I'm going to do just fine. Because when I look at this, these heroes, God's heroes, there's a lot of messed up people in there. Every one of them had big problems. And it doesn't take long to see that each one of God's heroes was going to need help, supernatural help, and physical help from people around them too. They couldn't do it alone. A fact that doesn't change today, right? I mean, each one of us is going to need help to do the best we can do in service to God, but also in service to each other and in service to the people out there, outside these doors. So I want to look back a little at history this morning, uh, Jewish history in particular, and how people prepared themselves and were prepared so that they could take this message of change and then change the course of the war, because we are in a war, right? They were given a message that we could change the course, they could change the course in the world, starting with the communities around them. 
So in Jesus' day, education was very big. It was huge in the Jewish community. People loved to sit at the feet of their rabbis to get a deeper understanding of God's Word and what God had them in store to do through His Word. Young men aspired to be rabbis. There was no higher calling within your community, within the Jewish community, than to be a rabbi. That was the pinnacle of what you could be. Rabbis would often argue, at what age is best to start a child in the trainings of becoming a rabbi? And they would say, well, under six is too young, but I think over six would be fine. One rabbi made a statement like this. He said, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. But from six upwards, we receive him and stuff him with the Torah like an ox. I mean, they wanted to get the Word of God in these young people as quickly as they could and as much as they could. So education was important not only to the educators, but to the parents and to the students as well. To have their child learn under a rabbi was a great honor. Now the Mishnah, which is a written collection of the Jewish Torah, has a phrase that says this, Above all, this is the Jewish culture, above all, we pride ourselves on education of our children. And this would be the same system that Jesus would be brought up in and that he would live under. Now, I know history can be a little tedious, and I know you're thinking, oh man, I hope this gets better. It is going to get better, I promise you. Just hang on, this is going to be good. Jewish, Jewish education was made up of three primary sections, and the first section was the Bet Sefer. Now, under this, this is usually children from young boys from the ages of six to ten. These young boys would be taught by their rabbi to memorize the first five books of the Torah. Does everybody know what the Torah is? Probably not. The Torah, starting with the first five books, is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would memorize those five books by the time they were 10 years old. And I'm like, what? somebody said it, wow. That's what I was like, whoa. Do you have one book in the Bible memorized? I don't. I mean, after, re after studying this, I was thinking, I was a little convicted, and I thought, well, I, I at least ought to start with the book of Jude, right? It's only got 25 verses. I ought to start somewhere, though, right? I mean, these guys, by the time they were 10, had five books memorized. And Leviticus was one of them, Chad. I mean, right? Chad's in Leviticus right now. He's like, oh, my word, i got to get through this, you know. The next section of training would be the Bet Talmud, and this was from ages 10 to 14. During this time, they would memorize all the Psalms, they memorize all the prophets and the rest of Hebrew Scriptures. So by the time they're 14, they would have the whole Bible, Old Testament, memorized. That just blows my mind when I look at that. But also during this time, they would learn something else that was pretty neat to me. They would learn the art of question an answer, which seems rather odd because, you know, in our Western civilization, we want information transfer as quickly as possible, right? I mean, we want to get that information out. I want to give it my question, and you give me back the information quick. But not in those days. For instance, a rabbi might say to a student, what's two plus two? And if I asked you, what's two plus two? You would say four. Of course you would. Well, not in those days. That's not what they would say. The rabbi would ask that question, and then the student would think about it for a minute and say, 
What is 16 divided by 4? It's the right answer, right? It's 4. Both of them. But he wouldn't answer with just an answer. He would answer. He was taught to answer with a question. And this told the rabbi that the student not only understood the question, but then was able to process it and then respond with a question that answered the question. Can you think of anybody else who did that? Jesus, of course, right? I always thought it was so crazy when I'd read in there and somebody would ask him a question and then he'd ask a question back. But that was part of their training. That's how they process things. That's how they let somebody else knew they not only knew the answer, but they were going to ask you a question at the same time. So in Luke chapter 2, we find Jesus' parents in a pretty big panic because Jesus, at the age of 12, has been missing for three days. If you have a 12-year-old that's been missing for three days, would that not cause panic? Of course it would, right? So they're in a panic, and they find him in the temple doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing at that age. Questions and answers under the elders. To Jesus, he'd be like, why are you guys so freaked out? I'm where I'm supposed to be right now. It says this, verse 45. When they didn't find Jesus, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, my first question there is, didn't they look in the car to see who was there when they pulled off? I mean, who doesn't, who leaves them there without checking to see if all the kids are there, right? And he's an only child at that point. Anyway, after three days, they found, they didn't look in the temple first. They looked all over town, and they didn't look in the temple. After three days, they find him in the temple. Now listen to this. He was sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and putting questions to them. That's pretty interesting to me. A 12-year-old. Everyone who heard him was amazed by his understanding and his answers. So Jesus, under this education system, at 12 years old then, was on his way to becoming a rabbi. He wouldn't be a rabbi for a while, but he was on his way to becoming a rabbi. So the final stages of preparing to be a rabbi would be the Bet Midrash. So that's three sections that we've talked about so far. And this is the final section. At age 14, the best of the best would continue to apply and learn the written law of the Torah under this rabbi. And now they would be wanting to learn more from this rabbi. But this rabbi, at any stage, you got to remember this, if they were anywhere less than, he would cut them off and say they could not carry on. So each rabbi, too, had their own interpretation of how to live out the Torah. Each rabbi had their own interpretation to how to live out the Torah or the laws of God. For instance, honor the Sabbath. One rabbi might say to honor the Sabbath means you can travel no further than from your home to the synagogue. That's honoring. The, any more than that would be work, and you can't work on the Sabbath. But another rabbi might interpret that as, oh, that's crazy. You have to travel twice the distance from your home to the temple because you got to get back home, right? But each of them had their own interpretation. The rabbi's rules, now listen to this, or his interpretation of what it took to follow the law were called his yoke. Hmm. We've heard that before, right? Starting to make a little sense now. 
Matthew 11 says this. This is Jesus talking. If you are tired from carrying a heavy burden, come to me and I will give you rest. Take the yoke I give you. Take my yoke. Put it on your shoulders and learn from me. I am gentle and humble, and you will find rest. This yoke, my yoke that I'm giving you to wear, is easy to bear, and my burden is light. You see, Jesus came and said his yoke was going to be easy. It isn't about an endless set of rules or regulations that I want you to follow. My yoke's going to be easy, contrary to what we do, because as humans, it seems like we want to complicate things, right? I mean, the more complex I can make something, the more it makes me look better or smarter or he's more significant because, boy, he really talks where nobody can understand. But that's not what Jesus did. He said, I came to make things simple. You're the one who's making them complex. And I love it because when Jesus was speaking, he wasn't just picking words out of the air. He was speaking exactly like a rabbi would speak. And that's what really made the religious leaders of the time angry. Because he was not only speaking like a rabbi, he was a rabbi. You know, when rabbis spoke about the teachings of God, they truly believed that to be the highest form of of worship that they could have. They believed that the highest form of worship was the study and that true study of God's Word always came out with the studier being in wonder of what God had done and what God was doing. So rabbis would ask their students very complex questions to see if their students had a grasp on their yoke. Not necessarily on the law, but on what their interpretation of the law was. If a student missed the point and gave a bad answer, the rabbi would respond with, no, you have abolished the Torah. But on the other hand, if they responded with a good answer, a right answer, the rabbi would respond with, yes, you have fulfilled the Torah. And again, when you're thinking about these things like this, and then Jesus comes on the scene, we all know that he's been saying stuff like this. He says stuff like, I didn't come to abolish what you've learned. I came to fulfill it. And see, we're looking at that thing, and what does he mean by that? They knew exactly what he meant. That's why a lot of them thought he was speaking heresy. Because he said, I came to fulfill the law. And in Matthew 5, 17, the NIV says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Then in the common English version, it says it like this. Don't suppose that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. I did not come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning. So we now see that the full meaning of everything that had been written about a Messiah coming, about a Savior coming in the world, all the stuff that the Jews had been studying for years was now here in bodily form. And Jesus said, it's me. That made them mad. You know, all Jewish boys wanted to become rabbis because being a teacher in that time period was the most respected position that you could ever have. Not so much today, right? I, uh, uh, I come from a um, 
a family of educators. I have quite a few teachers in my family, and they would all tell me today that, especially the older ones, it's not like it was even when they started. It's hard to teach today. But in this time, educators were respected above everybody. And at 14, the best of the best students who now had memorized all of the Old Testament would approach a rabbi and request to be his disciple. They would make a request. And the rabbi would test the boy with these complex questions to see if he was indeed that Harvard or Yale type student. Because don't ever doubt it, most of the boys washed out before this time. They didn't make the cut. But if they did, if they were that student, that Harvard or Yale student, he would say, yes, come and take my yoke, become my disciple. And at that time, 14, 14 years old, that young boy would leave everything, mom, dad, synagogue, community, friends, everything he would leave to go follow that rabbi wherever he went. And rabbis would spend their days taking their disciples around the countryside, teaching them messages from around different cities and around different places in the country. So they were always traveling on dusty old roads, and the rabbis would literally kick up dust. And because the disciples were following the rabbis so closely, they would actually get covered with the dust from their rabbis. In, the, in, in Jewish history, a rabbi wrote 200 years before Jesus this saying, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. There was no higher calling than to follow your rabbi so closely that you would even be covered in the dust that he kicked up while he was traveling down the road. In other words, you follow your rabbi so closely that even the dust from his feet settles on you and in you. On the other hand, there's always that possibility. Remember, this is the brightest of the brights following the rabbi. There was also that other possibility of the boys that didn't make it, that weren't the brightest students. And he would say, you know, obviously you know the Torah, but you do not have what it takes to be my disciple. You can't be just like me. So I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You need to go home, you need to make babies, and hopefully one of these babies will be smart enough to become a rabbi because you certainly are not. So go home, have a family, make babies, pray that one of them becomes a rabbi, and you, you need to get a trade. Somebody told me that years ago, too. I got a trade, but it worked out okay. Anyway, go learn your family business and live a good life, and may your sons be better than you. That brings us to a text in Matthew 4, 18, where I want to start, and then we'll go to Matthew 16 in just a minute. But Matthew 4, 18 starts off with this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. Hold it now, what? They were fishermen. What does that mean? Well, it means they were fishermen. No, it means more than that. It means... They washed out. It means they 
didn't make the cut. It means that a rabbi probably told them, you know, I appreciate your time and effort, boys, but you need to go home and learn the family business. You need to learn a trade because you're not good enough to take my yoke upon you. So I love this because Jesus now, he doesn't start with the cream of the crop. He's going to the losers, the rejects. That's the ones he's calling. Totally outside the norm because under a rabbi, to study under him, you would go to him and ask if I could be your disciple. But Jesus says this, come follow me. They didn't ask him anything. They were busy messing with their nets and stuff. He was just walking down the beach. He says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Is that weird to anybody else? I never got that. I mean, they just followed him. Here comes a guy walking down the beach and tells Peter and Andrew, come follow me. And they're learning the family business. I mean, this business is important. The family's going to depend on whether they catch fish or not. And besides that, I know how much fishing equipment costs. They got some equipment there. They're just leaving it all and walking with Jesus. On top of that, you know, you get that... I don't know why this picture came to mind of the Christian movies we see sometimes of Jesus walking down the beach. He's got like a bathrobe on and a blue sash, you know, and, and Bon Jovi here. And he's got some mystical, mystical way of telling people, come follow me. And they just, ooh, they start following him. No, that's not what. It is true that this is what happened, but forget the bathrobe and the blue sash and the hair. Um, that is what happened. There was nothing more. The author didn't leave anything out. You see, Jesus was a rabbi, and he was calling them. He thinks they're good enough, even though others in their past did not. He's giving them a chance to fulfill their dreams. So, of course, they would drop everything to follow this rabbi. Yeshua is calling us to go with him. Yeah, we'll go. And then verse 21, going on from there, he sees two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. There seems to be something missing here, too. Like the part where Zebedee's like, hey, where do you think you're going? You're not going to leave me here alone. I've got a lot of work to do. You're helping. What am I going to do with the family business? None of that's there. None of that's there. Instead of, you know, I don't think Zebedee was upset. I can really see him going home that way, night and telling his wife, well, the boys are gone. What do you mean the boys are gone? Where are the boys at? They're following Yeshua. Jesus, the rabbi, called them. And then the next day in town, I could just picture him strutting around town with his chest stuck out with a little swagger, you know, telling everybody his sons were now following Jesus, the rabbi. So Jesus is calling those who didn't make the cut. Now, I want to compound that because actually he was calling teenage young men to follow him. Now, that really sounds crazy to me. He says, I'm going to take these teenagers and change the world. Peter probably would have been about the oldest, maybe around 20. Usually men in that day got married around 18. He had a mother-in-law at that time, so he, he was probably recently married. He was probably the oldest. 
But the rest of these, at this point, would have been teenage young men, which actually tells me, you know, don't write off your teenagers too quick, quick, right? Because they may still amount to something. So Jesus takes teenage young men who hadn't made the cut and says, this is who I'm going to change the world with right here. So he takes this group of disciples that he's gathering. He starts traveling around the countryside, just like a rabbi would do, and teaching object lessons wherever he goes to these new disciples. And that's where we come to Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, I've read that a hundred times, way more than that. I've read that a ton because this is a really powerful scripture. And I always just wrote off that part, the region of Caesarea Philippi, just another town. That just a, this is another stop on the teaching tour that Jesus is going to use, right? Well, not so quick. Because in those days, Caesarea Philippi was one of the sinners' center of pagan worship. It was like a huge red light district. It was literally at the base of a really tall cliff, and onlookers would go to the top of this cliff and look down at the city, and they could see all the pagan revelry that was happening down below them. And in the front of that cliff, the face, there was a large slit in the rock, and it was believed to be this was the point where spirits would enter and leave the world, and that slit in the rock was named the Gates of Hell. Starts to make a little more sense what Jesus is going to say in a minute. Jesus would then say to them, this bunch of disciples, as he was looking over this very sinful city, this. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Remember, this is a teaching moment, right? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Actually, what they're saying is, Nobody knows who you are, but you're doing some really cool stuff. Then he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, beating the oldest, right? Simon Peter answers, I'll tell you who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, I can imagine, Jesus is ecstatic right now because Peter gets it. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, this confession that I am Lord, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. Where was he standing? Right above the gates of hell. Interesting, huh? Jesus is saying here, after he marched these young boys to the top of this rock. By the way, good Jewish boys who wouldn't have been caught dead in a place like that, whose parents would have said, don't you ever let me catch you going to Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus takes them there, and they're thinking, I hope nobody sees us here. And then Jesus is going to give them this great lesson. They're at this cliff, and Jesus acknowledges that Peter is absolutely right. And he looks down at the pagans, and he tells his young disciples, Upon this rock, the rock that I am the son of the living God, and upon these types of people, these sinful, wicked people, these ordinary people down here, 
I'm going to build my church. And even the gates of hell will not overcome it or all the evil spirits in the world because my Father has commissioned this. You know, he's telling his disciples that they're going to help him build a church among those type of people. The worst of the worst. He's not focusing his attention on the educated religious people who are hanging out in the synagogues. Wouldn't that have been interesting? Why didn't he go there? No, he didn't go there. He went to the worst of the worst cities and said, this is where I'm going to build my church. Ha. As a matter of fact, in Acts 4, it says this. This is really cool. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were ordinary and unschooled men, they were astonished and took note of who these men had been with. Jesus. You see, Peter and John, these ordinary unschooled men, were now confounding the elders with their own questions. So what are you saying, Max? So if someone's educated or religious, God won't use them? Not at all. I did not say that. If you look at some of the most educated people in the Bible, like Luke, who just wrote the statement about the ordinary unschooled men, you would see that Luke, it was said to have written in the most polished Greek because he was so highly educated. Nicodemus, a religious leader of the time, comes to Jesus and says this, Rabbi, Rabbi, remember that, we know you are a teacher who came from God, for no one could perform miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. This is a leader of the Pharisees, a teacher himself who calls Jesus teacher. An older man calling a younger man teacher, please tell me what to do. Very educated. Paul, who was highly educated, and by all teachers, by all the teachers it took uh, to make him who he was. He was educated by the best of the best. I mean, even when it tells who Paul's teachers are, it gives their name because people will know who they were. So he was educated in religion in his own eyes and in the eyes of his colleagues, he was considered to be faultless. Wow. That's pretty good. He said that about himself, too, so you got to wonder about that humility there, right? Paul said I was faultless only to come to Jesus and find out, then I found out what a wretched man that I was. Pre-Jesus, faultless, in Jesus, I'm having a hard time doing things right. Very educated man. He would later go on to write Colossians, my favorite book in the Bible, that he had been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son that Jesus, that God loves Jesus. He was now holy in God's sight. And he had been pre presented perfect, faultless again, now by Jesus. He had pre been presented perfect by Jesus to God the Father. And then Jude. What about Jude? You know, um, I'm assuming that most of us know who Jude is, but that might not be the case. Jude is the brother of Jesus. And so Jude writes this book, oh, along with James, too. James is also the brother of Jesus. So there's two brothers of Jesus, who, by the way, did not believe Jesus was who he said he was until after he was resurrected. Before, I mean, they were like, yeah, this Jesus, he's a little woo-hoo crazy. 
And now all of a sudden they're like writing books in the New Testament. Well, Jude writes a book, and look, I'm just saying, if it was me and this was the book of Mac, I'd say, I'd start off with probably Mac, brother of Jesus. I mean, that's got a good ring to it, right? But that's not what Jude does. Jude or James would not do that. Jude starts off by acknowledging not only is he, he not, not the brother of Jesus, he is a servant of Jesus Christ the Savior. And he warns the early church to watch out for men who boast about themselves or flatter others for their own advantage and pervert the gospel. And then encourages us to go out and snatch from the fire all those that we can. Give the messages we've got to others, is what he tells us. And he said, and continue to build your own life up in the Holy Spirit. And he would end with this. To him, Jesus, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence, listen to this, without fault, with much joy. Jesus, Jude, the brother of Jesus, said that Jesus presents us to the Father, the creator of the cosmos, as faultless and with great joy that he does that. We got hope, folks. We have hope. So I'm not saying you can't be educated or religious to follow God, here's what I'm saying. Don't let those things get in the way of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because they can. I love to tell the story of a Ph.D. that God placed in my life years ago. Me, an uneducated cabinet maker, and when I say uneducated, I meant I didn't go to college. I can read and write and do math, cabinet maker. But anyway, God placed this Ph.D. in my life, and it had to be some kind of divine circumstances because me and this guy would have never traveled within the same circle. So I was able to share with him Jesus, and the Holy Spirit broke his heart, and through tears he said to me something that I'll never forget. He said, that was almost too simple of a message. In fact, I almost missed it. It was so simple. Remember what Jesus did. He came to make it simple. This is a simple message, folks. It's not complex. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Christ died to save sinners. We accept him. We go home with him. That's the message. So, yes, he does call educated and uneducated. He calls religious and pagans The point is, don't let anything get in the way of his call. Because really, when you think about it, in one sense, not much has changed. He's still calling today. He's calling you. He's calling me. But Mac, if you only knew, if you only knew, he can't use me. I show up here every week, but if you only knew. You see, I got a past. He could never use me. To which I respond with, seriously? That's all you got? Everybody I know and have read about that Jesus uses has a past. And not a good one either. God only uses broken people. We love to say that in Celebrate Recovery. You see, upon that rock, the rock or confession that Peter made that Jesus is Lord, 
people in this city of Woodland Park, Florissant, Divide, Chapita Park, all the cities around here, in your school, in your groups that you're in, everybody that you know, God's calling you to share with them what you have. And not even the gates of hell can get in the way of that because this is a divine appointment from the Creator Himself. But it all comes back to you. It all comes back to right where you are. You see, Jesus is walking down the beach towards you still. He's calling out, come and follow me. I don't mean come and show up at church on Sunday every week. That's a good place to be on every Sunday, but that's not all it is. It's come and follow me and do the works I prepared for you to do in advance. What will your answer be? May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. You know, it's my prayer and the prayers of the leaders here that as a church and individually, we are following Jesus so closely that when we walk out those doors back there, people see something different about us that begs the question, what, what, what is it about you? You seem to be able to have peace in circumstances where others don't. You seem to answer softly instead of angrily questions that people get to that should get you riled up, but you don't. What's the difference in you? So I would say to you this this morning. Don't leave what you learn here, here. Don't leave what you study at home behind your front door. Take it with you. And during the day, find ways and discussions to bring up what you've been learning from the rabbi, from the Savior, from the Messiah, Jesus. Don't shake off the dust. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. If you have any needs this morning, if you want prayer, there's going to be people down here to pray with you, or if you just want to come down and pray, the invitation is open. Please come while we stand and sing.